So we're beginning our talk number two on the ascent of Mount Carmel. So once again, we'll begin with the stanzas of the soul. One dark night fixed or fired with the love of urgent longings. Ah, the sheer grace. I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled in darkness and secure by the secret ladder disguised. Ah, the sheets and darkness and moment, my house being now all stilled. Oh, that glad night in secret, for no one saw me, nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he was awaiting me, him I knew so well, there in a place where no one appeared. O oh, guiding night, O oh, night more lovely than the dawn, O oh, night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the turret, as I parted his hair, it wounded my neck with its gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. St. John of the Cross, pray for us. I wanted to divide it up uh, to make it more approachable and hopefully understandable uh, because it is or less the, the understanding of St. John of the Cross that when he was writing uh, the Ascent of Mount Carmel, he was also including in parts of that the dark night of the soul. So he's kind of jumping back and forth to, to each of the books. And so what he offers here, though, is a really good presentation on the senses and the dark night of the senses both in the active and then in the passive. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in the next several talks and then in the talk tonight. So we are in book one uh, for this talk, and then we'll be in book two and the talk at four o'clock, and then we'll be in the second part of book two at the conference this evening. So, um, you know, in Italy, the Reposo is a sacred time. Uh, it's that nap time after lunch. And uh, it was in the, even in the seminary in Rome, it was the sacred silence. You know, from two to three o'clock, you could not say or do anything in the hallways. You could not make any noise. Uh, you would get in serious trouble because everybody was taking that wonderful Reposo. Um, so I'm sorry if I interrupted your Reposo. <laughs> So, but I think you'll think it'll be worth it because to gain what St. John of the Cross has to share with us um, maybe is worth skipping one nap, though your body might feel a little bit later. I know mine, mine likes those little naps and uh, I got quite used to them in Rome and I still, I still try to insert them into my day when I can. And so what we learned of the life of St. John of the Cross is that through a life of privation misunderstanding and imprisonment and even final persecution, this saint had two choices. The same choice that is given to you and I. Allow these things to become opportunities for growth in the spiritual life, or allow these things to turn one into a bitter, negative person who sees nothing good in the church or the world. As we all learned around two years of age, Life is not fair, and the universe does not revolve around us. The universe does not exist to please and serve us. At times, it can actually be quite cruel. 
Most important, as we mature, we begin to understand that we cannot expect to get through this life without suffering, whether that is mental, emotional, physical, or spiritual. Friar John was, in biblical terms, a person small in stature, standing about five feet tall. He was thin, bald-headed, and wore a very coarse brown habit. To those first encountering him, they would have been surprised that this spiritual giant was contained in such a small body. Much like our modern saying, good things come in small packages, right? You know, you get that that diamond ring in a very small box. Um, So from this small, unassuming monk would come some of the greatest Catholic classics of all time. Among these, the ascent of Mount Carmel, which we will be delving into now. Friar John had a deeply compassionate heart and a special love for those who were sick. One of the criticisms given about St. John of the Cross and the method that he tells us that we must uh, basically embrace in order to obtain that dark night of the soul. Some say that, well, it's all, it's all love of God and, and, and it's not love of people because you're supposed to basically block out everything. You block out the world, you block out even the, the, the spiritual things and you're just left only with God. And, and some say that, that just sounds like, then that's all that you really care about. And nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, the more that you could do something excessive, uh, you know, and, and especially uh, with your body, you know, making it suffer and all of this, he just said that, that he would not allow his, his brothers to engage in those. He said he found that life alone often brings enough penances with it. And boy, he would know, wouldn't he? Because <laughs> his life was one long penance. It really was. But it was also a life of joy. And so the two can go together. His most ardent concern was for souls that he found in spiritual distress. So that's, he had a special love for them uh, because it was these souls that he wrote the ascent of Mount Carmel for, souls in spiritual distress. So we'll be looking at the various parts of this particular book, and it's a book that I could do an entire month of retreats on, seriously. Um, well, this, this retreat is designed just to give to you, the retreatant, a uh, basic understanding of what St. John of the Cross presents in this book, And with this understanding to then on your own, to read the book for itself. It's a book that should be read in small parts, reflecting, meditating upon what one has read and getting a clear understanding of that before moving on. Thus, it is a book that could be read over and over again until the thoughts contained therein become part of one's spiritual journey. It gets you to understand at least the basics of it, that you're now willing to say, hmm, yeah, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and try this out. I'm going to start to read this and really start to maybe incorporate some parts of this into my spiritual life. So the Ascent of Mount Carmel focuses on three things, which we will be looking at separately in each talk. The first is how we uh, will first examine how we unburden ourselves of earthly things. Okay. So the sensory things. The second We'll highlight how we avoid spiritual obstacles. So how do, how do we unburden ourselves of those spiritual obstacles? And then the third will reveal how we live in that complete nakedness and freedom of the spirit necessary for that divine union, what is known as the dark night of the soul. So those are the three parts. Basically, those are the three talks. The middle talk, as I said, will be consist of two talks, one at four and then the other one uh, tonight. So one of the most important things to note is in looking at the writings of Friar John is the central place that sacred scripture has. Like St. Teresa Avila, Friar John uses sacred scripture extensively. I mean, if you read the Ascent of Mount Carmel, one thing, if you don't exactly get what 
with what Friar John is saying, you will at least get a heavy, good dose of scripture. And that's always a good thing. Us Catholics, we need to get more. We're doing better. We need to do even more. We need to really, we need to get to know that Bible inside and out. As I say to people, when they quote a book to us, we can just flip to it. Always impressed by those Baptists. You know, they could just, they could look up anything. And then they're just quoting to you, chapter, verse, you know, and I'm just going like, and then they're looking at me. Isn't that right, Father? Doesn't it say that in Mark 7? Da, 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 and I'm like, Mark 7, da, da, da. can you give me the context? Uh, you know, and then they'll start now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I know what you're talking about. Because um, we know more like the stories and the history and the different things. So he says, you want to understand this? It's, it's all in the scriptures. That's, that's where the secrets of this are revealed. And, and that's how they're best understood. So he says, human science and human experience are inadequate to explain them. He says, you know, they're helpful to some degree, but, but at a certain point, they, they're no longer useful in this. But sacred scripture is. It gives us great enlightenment. Like Madre Teresa, Friar John laments at souls who want to remain in a lesser union. That is experiencing God in the minimum. In the Catholic Church, this is called Catholic light. There's a lot of Catholics out there that fall in this category. Uh, it is a faith that understands a few basics of the faith, but it, it goes no deeper. That's it. And so there's not that deep personal relationship established with God. And one is more or less content with this throughout one's life. There's just no desire, no uh, real recognition on their part that there's anything more to do. Um, and it's not necessary to enter the dark night, they think, in order to have, or excuse me, it's not necessary to enter the dark night in order to have a deep personal relationship with God. But once that relationship has been established, the dark night can take the soul to an even deeper understanding and relationship with God. So we can have a deep and personal relationship with God without the dark night. But the dark night then takes us to that next really great place in that relationship. Many souls not only avoid getting to know God in a deep and personal way, but even souls that do, they avoid the dark night for several reasons. First, they don't want to. <laughs> this is often due to not wanting to let go of control. Admit it, we're all control freaks, every single one of us. We're always trying to be in control. We're telling God, I've got this. I, I figured it out. Uh, I think my will might be the better way to go on this, God, than yours. Um, we're always playing that, that tug of war with him. We're pulling the rope and then, then he pulls it back and we kind of let him and then we pull it back again. And it's kind of a lifelong struggle of us letting go of that control. And so there's some that just, they don't want to let go of that. So they're not going to go on this dark night because it requires you to completely let go. Others, it's out of fear of what they may have to give up. What do I have to give up? You mean I have to deny myself? I have to make sacrifices? I have to forego uh, pleasure and other things? I don't want to. I don't want to have to give up any of that. I don't want to have to do things that require sacrifice of me. So this fear it keeps them from from going forward with this because they think they're going to lose something when in fact they will gain everything. That's what we don't figure out. It's like we want to hold on to the little bit we have and, and we're not willing to, to surrender to God and realize we'll, we'll, we'll gain everything. You know, one of the most fascinating stories I read uh, was uh, about raccoon. Log that the raccoon could see through that hole. And then you, you block off the ends of the log. So he can't go through to get it through the ends. And then what he'll do is he'll reach down and he'll grab onto that shiny object. And then he won't let go of it. And he will stay there. And then you come around, usually with a big club or a gun or something, and, and that raccoon will not run off. 
that raccoon will hold on to that little shiny object, even though it'll cost it its own life. Now, how are we like that little raccoon? What little tiny shiny object are we clutching onto and saying, God, I'm going to hold on to this because, you know, if I let go of this, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm going to hold on to this thing, even though it's going to cost me my soul. And we think, well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? And why would we do that? And yet we do do that. We want to hold on to the little bit that we have because we don't want to take that next step. We don't want to let go. And so there's a lot of people, that's the category they fall into, and that's where they're going to stay. And they basically tell God, thanks, but no thanks. Um, and we can, you know, we can sometimes be like a resistant child. You think of the, uh, you know, trying to, to uh, resist God, trying to walk on our own. And so, you know, we, we make some headway, but it's at a child's pace. It's not at the pace that God wants us to. And so the second reason is they don't allow themselves to be placed in it. They allow obstacles to remain in the way, temporal or spiritual. The third reason might be they misunderstand themselves. Only through God do we really get to know and understand ourselves. You know, we don't even know ourselves. Isn't that amazing? Talk about a philosophical adventure. Trying to figure out myself. We, we go around trying to figure out everybody else, don't we? Yeah, I got him figured out. I got her figured out. Yep, I'll put that person in that category and that person, I'll put them, you know, put them in that pig in that hole. You know, we don't even understand ourselves. Uh, and it is God who is going to get us to truly understand ourselves. And it is through the dark night. You know, God knows us better than we know ourselves. But there's some people they don't want to know. They don't want to see up close and personal. And so they're just not going to take that next step. And the fourth reason is they are without suitable or alert directors. Tonight, I have a spiritual director who knows and recognizes both the darkness and the trials that are necessary along the way to the dark night could leave one confused and with bad spiritual advice. So they just don't have somebody that can really help them in that. Uh, and... St. John on the Cross, he says, it's essential for one to have a competent spiritual director, one who's enlightened and experienced when understanding the dark night. A spiritual director could be a priest, a religious sister or brother, or a spiritual friend. It's usually best to choose a spiritual director who could be objective with us. Choosing a close friend can sometimes be a hindrance, as we talked about before, because we can't, we can't be as honest with them as we need to. Beware of the wrong spiritual director, Friar John says. That person is like the builders of, of the Tower of Babel, who they bring the wrong materials because they cannot understand the language. Isn't that a wonderful way of how he, he takes that story? Um, a soul that does not understand itself is not helped by another who also doesn't understand. So getting a good spiritual director who understands the dark night, that is, that is important. Um, to get one who doesn't understand it could result in some things uh, or some conclusions that are, that are false. So it's understanding, it's good to have a spiritual director who understands the difference between the dark night and melancholy. Uh, melancholy is what in Friar John's day, they call depression, like what we would know, especially today, you know, we know some people who suffer from a severe depression and, and it has a biological component to it. And it, it, it's something, you know, back then they, they recognized that there was something there, um, but, but Friar John was, was very clear. The dark night is not depression. Um, there's some books I've seen on the dark night that kind of take this approach, kind of a psychological approach where they say, oh, you know, the dark night that you're experiencing in your life, um, you know, due to your, your depression, your sadness, your different things, um, you know, here's, 
here's how to rise above it. Here's how to, to get beyond that. That's a complete misunderstanding of the dark night. The dark night is not depression. The dark night is us voluntarily giving up all of those things, sensory and spiritual, um, that get in the way of us having that divine union with God. Um, so it's something very different than some people understand it in contemporary society. So if you ever hear somebody speaking about the dark night and they start going into this, you know, it's about, oh, it's about your trials and all the struggles in your life and all the terrible things that have happened to you. And it's like, that's not the dark night. But here's this person telling you, no, you should, you should back up. You should go back to the beginning, which would be the worst advice to give somebody. So an incompetent spiritual director may recommend general confession for this soul. This should be avoided. The soul that is going through purgation should receive comfort and encouragement, not retell all or his or her former sins. The soul should try to endure the suffering as long as God wills it. And a note on this, general confession, though still practiced by some, really is a practice that should be avoided since it only increases a tendency towards scrupulosity and it negates the grace and power of previous confessions. You know, when you go to confession, you, you mention your mortal sins, you can mention your venial sins, you don't have to mention all of them. Um, and whatever sins that are left, even the ones you forgot, they're forgiven. They're forgiven in that confession. And to say anything less than that is to somehow put a condition on that that God does not put on that confession. It's to somehow limit his mercy to say, well, you can't really forgive me, God, because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite sorry enough or, you know, I forgot to mention these two things or I forgot. You know, the church even teaches if you, if you forget to mention a mortal sin, you know, it's still forgiven, but you're to mention it in your next confession just in case it's something that, that the confessor has to address with you. But this whole thing of us thinking, I have to keep retelling sins I've already been forgiven of, that's, that's ridiculous. That's Satan. That's Satan saying, you will never be forgiven. You will never be forgiven. No matter how many times you go to confession, no matter how many times you confess this, God's never going to forgive you of this, and you're going to hell. That's what Satan is trying to tell us. He wants to make confession out to be basically something that doesn't have that power that Christ has given to it. He wants to make confession into to something that basically you and I, we won't have a chance. And so let's not listen to Satan in that. I tell people, when you leave confession, you should be jumping and skipping for joy. You are forgiven. You should be saying, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you and just be lifted up by that confession and not saying they're going, oh, you know, maybe, maybe this and maybe that and oh, and I'm gonna have to just reconfess all this again later and then I'll do that and then a couple weeks later, I'll reconfess it all again. Um, St. John of the Cross says that is not a practice to be encouraged uh, because it really does take away the efficacy of the sacraments. So, there is a couple of reasons, uh, or we should say errors, that one should avoid uh, as we're approaching the dark night. The first is I'm being led along the dark night when I'm not. This is tied to deficiency. So, are we really in the dark night, or are we just thinking we are? And we haven't really taken the steps necessary to, to really be entering into that the way we're supposed to. The second is I'm not praying when in reality you are intensely. So this is, this is another trick of Satan. This is, makes you think you're not praying when you really are. And St. Teresa of Avila, you know, she talks about some of that with that discipline of prayer. Whenever we take that time to be with the Lord, to spend that time with him, you know, our minds might be going all over the place. But as long as we're present with him and we're there with him 
And we're trying to just enter into that as best we can, but our mind's still kind of doing whatever it wants. And we say, oh, I'm not praying. Yes, you are. Your intellect and your will are drawing closer to God, even though your mind, as I was just sharing with somebody, is like a yapping dog running around the house. And that's how St. Teresa of Avila describes it. Or there's the third one, I am praying, when in reality, you're not. Boy, this gets tricky, doesn't it? You're thinking, well, am I praying or am I not praying? Uh, well, are we really praying? Are, are we really allowing ourselves to be present to the moment? Or are we just, you know, it's kind of like this thing of, you know, I'm praying the rosary and I'm just going, Hail Mary, full of grace, Lord, with thee, blessed Romans, and you know, or sometimes what drives me crazy as a priest is when the, the parish is like a galloping racehorse and they want to pray the Our Father in less than seven seconds. You know, it's like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it's, it's like, is that praying the Our Father? See, and it's like, so let's recognize, am I praying or am I not praying? And, and be honest about that and see, maybe, you know, we are praying. And then when we think we are praying, we're not. Using prayer exercises, there are no benefit. So St. John of the Cross says there are many, many good things to use out there. The church has a whole bunch of different ways of how we can pray. And they're all beneficial in different ways. But he says, recognize when, when a certain one maybe is no longer uh, being useful for you, that, that maybe you're being called to go to, to something else or something deeper. Um, recognize when it's time maybe to let go of something. So, so he basically, you know, he's not talking about something like the rosary. You know, he's, he's talking about some of the different methods and different things, especially connected to uh, meditative prayer. And then uh, the fifth one is being encumbered by consolations and favors. This is the big one. This is one we're going to really get into. I like it when I pray and I feel good afterwards. I like the little kudos that God gives me along the way to encourage me to pray. I like the really good feeling I have because I just prayed for a bunch of different people and it reveals my, my love for them and my care for them and and I just feel really good about doing that. And we pretty soon we, we're dependent on that. See, we're getting used to that. So God, every time I pray, you have to give me this really good feeling inside. And all of a sudden, one day, we don't have it. I just prayed, and now I don't have that feeling. And then we pray a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day, and we don't have that feeling. Hmm. Maybe I'll just stop praying. See, we put a condition on our prayer. God, unless you give me consolations, I'm not going to pray. And St. John of the Cross is going to get into how our depending on consolations can actually keep us stunted in our spiritual life. So the doctrine of the dark night is it's not easily understood. A, a person is encouraged to read, reread, and then reread again this book. I've read it many times. I keep rereading it. Every time I reread it, I get something more out of it. I get a new insight. Uh, I get a different perception of what he's saying. And so we continue, can continue to attain a, a deeper and a better understanding of it. Uh, if we just keep rereading it and allowing it to kind of just gradually, you know, become part of our spiritual life. So though originally written for friars and nuns, the Carmelites, it could be helpful even to those living in the secular world. And as we talked about, Friar John showed that very well because he was, he was out having to deal with the secular world a, a lot of the time. And yet he had that deep, deep contemplative spirit. So there are two nights, purgations of the soul that we must pass through. This is going to sum up So you got the sensory. The sensory is, is all the things from the five senses. Okay? So anything that's from the five senses, 
And then we have the spiritual. Okay. And, and this one is much more difficult. Uh, the spiritual, like we were saying, uh, those consolations and such, um, to be able to, to give up the sensory and then to give up the spiritual good things too. Uh, these things, they're not exclusively separate. They actually, at times, they interact. And so we can't put them in, into just real clear divided categories. They're, they're going to interact with one another, but for the most part, just to kind of distinguish, he wanted to kind of say, you know, anything with our five sentence, the taste, tasting, hearing, smelling, all this, those things that, that we encounter all the time, uh, do those get in the way of our making that advancement towards God? And then what spiritual things as well? And so we understand then that the soul departs on a dark night in stillness, that the senses are asleep to external things, the flesh, gratification of the will, God places the soul in this night. So, so this stillness where our senses are like asleep. So one of the best ways he says it is like you're sitting in chapel, right? And you have all these, these nice, beautiful things here. You know, statues of Mary and the angels, the beautiful tabernacle, right? A beautiful crucifix of Jesus. Now, all these things are helpful and good to us. But he says at some point, we want to get to where we sit in the chapel these things, they might help us enter into prayer at first. But then after a while, he says, those things should almost just disappear. Those, we become kind of blind to them. And then we're just kind of just there with God. We're just present with him. And our senses aren't even really working anymore. You know, we don't smell the incense and maybe we don't hear if there's like some music or something or, or we don't see the things, all of a sudden our, our senses are suspended. And now what we're doing is we're getting a clear, direct path to God because our senses aren't getting in the way of that. So does that, does that make sense? Does that, so, so far I have you, that's good. <laughs> that is, so, because he takes this, you know, step by step and I think he does a good job, but sometimes, uh, it gets to be a little bit much kind of balancing it all. Um, so, so far, so good. All right. So the night consists of depriving oneself of worldly possessions. Okay. That's something I think we can relate to in our, in our society. We, we have stuff, stuff, and more stuff. Um, There's a great song uh, back in the nineties on that as a sung by a Christian musician, Catholic musician, um, stuff, stuff, more stuff. Um, I have stuff. I just got rid of some stuff. I just took some stuff to the thrift store in Lincoln. Um, and I still have more and more and more stuff to take. Uh, we never seem to be able to get rid of that stuff. Um, the road traveled is faith, which is darkness to the intellect. So when we have faith, the, the intellect, the intellect is trying to figure out like who God is, what God is, it's trying to describe God, it's trying to see and imagine God, it's trying to figure out kind of who is God, right? But it really can't. The intellect really can't understand who God is. In the end, the intellect is incapable of really seeing and knowing and understanding God in his reality of who he really is. So John Cross says the way that the intellect has to now approach this is it has to go dark. It has to stop thinking and trying to put God into certain categories and ways that we are trying to figure him out and, and, and actually trying to limit God because we're trying, to, we're trying too hard to understand, you know, who and what God is when he says faith Faith is what tells us what God is. 
And so if our intellect goes dark, it opens the way to faith, where faith just takes us to that reality of God because our intellect's not getting in the way. Anybody ever tell any of you, you're overthinking it? (laughs) I've been told that. You are way overthinking this, Father. Um, It's just, it's one of those things where we're trying too hard to just figure it all out. And the fact is, St. John of the Cross says, your intellect, you know, we can understand some basics of God through our intellect, but in the end, it can never really know God in the way that faith is going to know God. But faith can't know God unless the intellect gets out of the way. And the arrival with God is darkness to the soul in this life. So it is... uh, when we, when we reach that dark night of the soul, um, it is darkness to the soul. In other words, uh, you know, St. Mother Teresa, she experienced this. 40 years of darkness. Because that's what it is to the soul in this life. It is, it is the, the, the complete absence almost of God. And yet God, we are closer to God than ever in that absence. I mean, it's a paradox. It almost seems like a contradiction, but that's exactly what it is. That the more it seems like God is not there, the actually the closer we are drawing to God. And at some point, he's going to give us that mystical union. He's going to give us that, that spiritual light that is just going to be so amazing and incredible. But, you know, 40 years, 40 years of the dark night of the soul. How did Mother Teresa do it? Talk about a persevering soul. Talk about a soul that trusted and had faith in God. That's all she had in the end was faith. My next retreat, by the way, uh, will be looking at Mother Teresa's book, in which she discusses her dark night. You know, that wasn't released for quite a few years. And the reason it wasn't released is because they said the world won't understand it. And it didn't. First thing you heard from these, these secular commentators on TV was, what? She went around so joyful all the time. And here she was like, you know, experiencing this darkness all the time. No, it was because she was experiencing that darkness that she was close to God, even though God seemed far away. And it was through her faith and her hope and her love that she witnessed to God. Because those three things are what work in the dark night. And so it's why they were hesitant to release that book. Because they said, the world won't understand this. It doesn't know the dark night. It doesn't understand this. And so they went ahead and released it finally. But to a lot of people, it was a very disturbing book. They thought Mother Teresa was a fraud. And that was their conclusion because they don't understand what the dark night is really about. So night is depriving the appetites. Night is not depression or despair. See the difference between that? Night is depriving the appetites. There's not depression or despair. Big, big difference. So night is a deprivation of light. Night is that deprivation of sight. So we have our five senses, right? So you have hearing, taste, touch, smell. Which one am I missing? Taste is just sight. <laughs> yeah. That is a sense of humor. <laughs> So these things, you know, we see that the soul at times, it's obviously interacting with those things. So, you know, our soul, that's what we're using when when we use beautiful statues and such for devotion and for our prayer. You know, we're, we're using these senses and connecting that, you know, to our soul. So St. John of the Cross is saying, well, if you want to enter the dark night, though, you're going to have to do the opposite. 
you, you're going to have to eliminate these things in order for the soul to now enter the dark night. Okay, so that's so telling us to give these up. You know, that's not an easy thing. That's, uh, we depend on our senses a lot. And in our spiritual life, we probably depend on them a lot more than we realize. So to now say, I'll voluntarily give up these things in order to enter into this, that's where you get a lot of hesitation. That's where a lot of people say, I'm not willing to go there. So... The first thing, though, that we can work on is worldly goods, though. So that's like, okay, let's start where we can, right? So to give up worldly goods, it's not poverty, by the way. I can give up all my worldly goods, and, and, and that's not poverty. Um, to give up the desire for worldly goods is true poverty. This was one of the insights that I got from St. John of the Cross that I thought was, was like, wow, it was... It was, a, it was such a great way of how he put this. So a rich person who is not fixed on riches has a poverty of spirit. A poor person fixed on riches is not living real poverty. You see how that is? Because a poor person can be more obsessed with riches than a rich person who has them. If a rich person does not have the desire for riches, a rich person is generous with his or her riches. And so is sharing those riches you know, with the poor is sharing those in a way that's going to help enrich the common good according to the will of God, is going to you know, help build beautiful churches and other things, you know, is using those riches in a way that's truly uh, for the love of God and the building up of the kingdom of God. If that person is using their riches in that way, then, then that desire for riches is not there. But if they have that desire for riches, then they will be self-centered. They will spend a lot of that on themselves. They won't be thinking very much of the poor, except for doing some, they call it virtue signaling, right? Where, yeah, I give to something because I want to be noticed. Um, you know, Mother Teresa, at one point, she was going to be given a, a, a farm uh, so the poor people could farm it and raise their food. And so she told the guy that was going to, to give this, this farm, it was, in, it was in India. She said, take me out to your farm. You know, she, was, she was a formidable woman, by the way. You know, she was no nonsense. You did not try to trick her or get around her. Um, she figured you out uh, quicker than you thought. She goes, take me out to your farm. Before I accept your, your gift, take me out there. And so he takes her out there, and she's walking around. They have this on videotape. And she's walking around, and she's picking up this, and she's looking at it. And she comes back to him, and she goes, we refuse your gift. She goes, this land is worthless. You can't farm it. And she goes, and you knew that. You're doing this for political reasons. She called him out right there. Can you imagine being called out by Mother Teresa? You know, and all these people are filming it, right? You have all this, this camera crew is supposed to be there to say how wonderful this guy is because he's giving this land to the poor. And she's saying, you're giving us useless land. See, that's where somebody, they have that desire for riches or power. They're not, they're not, they're in the wrong place in how they're approaching all of that. So the lack of things is not enough, Okay. So we must desire to lack of things. See the difference there? So, but still work on that garage and that basement and all those other places because they're piling up. Um, you can come help me with my basement first. Uh, so I'm, I'm making efforts. I'm getting there. So it's going to be a, a project for this winter to get it completely, completely free. Hence, we call this nakedness, this mortification of the appetites, a night for the soul. For we are not discussing the mere lack of things. 
This lack will not divest the soul if it craves for all these objects. Okay, so the willing appetite, it can have an inordinate desire. All of a person's attachments to creature are pure darkness in God's sight. So if I'm attached to things, and I'm, I can even be attached to people, right, in a way that those people are more important to me than God is, um, then God looks at those things and he sees them as darkness in our lives uh, because we're, 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 we're loving them more than we're loving him. We're not giving that, that center stage and that complete focus and that complete love to God. We're, we're, we're trying to, to kind of say, well, God, yeah, I love you, but, and then over here, we're dividing our love. So he talks about attachment to creatures being darkness, not to be confused with the dark night. He's talking about darkness in a negative way here. Not a good thing. As opposed to attachment to God, which is light. Okay. So attachment to creature makes one equal to that creature. So take out your first handout. So it has the dogs on it and the people. So he says attachment to a creature makes one equal to that creature. Okay, so like if I have attachment to my pickup truck, which I do, <laughs> I love my pickup truck. Uh, I was talking to somebody about how could I be buried with this? You know, would that be a little ostentatious? Um, no, from Wyoming, you know, when you come from Wyoming, you love your truck and it's just kind of a given. But, uh, you know, then if I attach myself to my truck, in a certain sense, I become like the truck in a way. So to kind of play off this, this humor that Friar John likes to do. So I found this on the internet, you know, and it says, for better proof of this, it ought to be kept in mind that an attachment to a creature makes a person equal to that creature. The firmer the attachment, the closer is the likeness to the creature. <laughs> Some of these are really amazing, aren't they? And the greater the equality, for love affects a likeness between the lover and the object love. So those of you uh, online, we're looking at this particular uh, handout where the dogs and their owners look very much alike. And so, so just kind of a, a, fun, a fun play on that of how St. John the Cross says, attachment to the creature makes us equal to that creature even in likeness. And so he says, you know, what prepares the soul to be united with God is the desire for God. So all creatures and creation is nothing compared to God. We have to, we have to get that down in our minds. All creatures and creation are as nothing in comparison to God. So once we, we begin to understand that, then we see and know and understand God in the correct way. If we're attached to a creature, then we are unsightly before God. Uh, the wisdom of God versus, you know, human knowledge and ability and those limitations. So to reach union with God's wisdom, we must advance by unknowing, not by knowing. So see how that, how he works that out. In order for me to be united with God's wisdom, I must advance by unknowing, realizing everything that I think I know, I, I really don't know. And only by me admitting and saying, God, I, I, I really don't know anything about who you really are in, in your divine reality. And so I'm going to empty myself of everything so far that I've thought about uh, of who you are so that it then is not blocking my way of coming to know and experience you as you really are. So does that make sense? Everybody good. All right. Excellent. <laughs> because it's little by little, it's, 
It took me, you know how many years I studied this before I got to the point where I said I could do a retreat on this um, because I, because I finally was understanding it in a way that I was real comfortable with it. So, so uh, thank you for your patience as I try to explain this to you. So he says, slavery is a heart that's dominated by desires, whereas freedom is desiring God alone. Okay. So freedom and sovereignty of the world uh, is slavery compared to the freedom and sovereignty of the spirit of God. So delights and satisfactions of the will in this world uh, basically are like intense suffering, torment, and bitterness. And that's a strange thing for him to say. You're thinking, what am I, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Delight, satisfactions of the will in this world are like intense suffering, torment, and bitterness. And he's saying in comparison, when you compare the delights and satisfactions of this world to God, it's like those things are actually like suffering and torment and bitterness. When you really compare them to God, the greatest delight of this world can't even get close. It's more like a suffering than it is a delight. Because knowing God and experiencing God completely is the ultimate delight. And then you look back and say, why did I settle for that when, when I could have this? And so we see that wealth and glory of creation is then seen by John as poverty and misery. See, he's taking everything and he's, he's turning it upside down. So all the wealth of the world, when compared to God, is poverty. And so ignorance is believing that I can attain a high union with God without emptying my appetite of the desire of natural and supernatural things. So we must seek total renunciation. We should have a desire for heavenly food instead of craving earthly food. We must raise our appetites above childish things and in simple spiritual food, discover the savor of all things. So St. John of the Cross helps us understand this in a deeper way from a, an event in the Old Testament. And, and this, once again, I was just like, wow, this is, this is where he gave a great insight on this. So, so you have this in your scripture uh, sheets. We have a figure of this in Exodus chapter 16, where we read that God did not give the children of Israel the heavenly manna until they exhausted the flour brought from Egypt. The meaning here is that first total renunciation is needed for the bread of angels is disagreeable to the palate of anyone who wants to taste human food. So isn't that intriguing? You know, I never picked up that detail before until I read it in the Ascent of Mount Carmel, that they, the, the food they brought out of Egypt, the flour and everything, uh, they had to use that up before God gave them that manna from heaven. The manna from heaven, we're, we're told is heavenly food. And then ultimately, Jesus becomes that manna from heaven that's given to us now as real food. And, and, and him, his food is so much better, right, than, than any, any worldly food. Um, and so God isn't going to give this manna, this heavenly food, to the Jewish people until they've used up all the worldly food, until they finally have let go of it. See how that is? So persons feeding on other strange tastes not only become incapable of the divine spirit, but even greatly anger the divine majesty because in their aspirations for spiritual food, they're not satisfied with God alone, but mix these with aspirations, uh, a desire and affection for their things. And this is likewise apparent in the same book of sacred scripture where it states that the people discontented with that simple food. So now they don't like the manna, right? Requested and craved meat. <laughs> now, you know what? I love those little, they're, they're like the six ounce filet mignon bacon wrapped from Omaha steaks. Anybody ever have those? They are so good. So good. You know, and here we are, uh, you know, uh, making ourselves hungry, thinking about it, right? And, and so here's the Jewish people. They're like, we're tired of manna. You know, every day you give us manna. We have to go out and collect it. And, you know, and sure it sustains us and everything, but like we want meat. Um, and so they anger the Lord because of their desire to commingle a food so base and coarse with one so high and simple, even though simple contained the savor and substance of all foods. The manna was being given to them 
by God, miraculously. He was bringing that down from heaven to them. And they were like, we're not satisfied with that. We want worldly food. So you see how St. John the Cross is saying, see how we can say, God, you know, I want worldly food. Ah, I, don't, I don't want your, your, your son Jesus in, in the heavenly food that he gives me. You know, that Eucharist, that's not going to satisfy me. I want worldly things. How many Catholics do not even know if they've walked away from the church, what they've walked away from? That often, I, I tell people, nobody who knows and understands Jesus in the Eucharist would ever walk away from him. Ever. They walk away because they're ignorant. Because they do not understand what is there. They don't understand that this bread from heaven is the best food of all. And yet at times we choose, do we not? We want that worldly food instead. God, this is not enough for me. This isn't, this isn't making me content. This isn't giving me everything that I want because I'm still attached to the world. I still want all these worldly things. Now, we're not talking about like we never eat again. We're talking about the fact that we're valuing worldly things over the ultimate spiritual thing that connected us with Christ in the most profound way. This is the closest we get to Jesus until we get to heaven, or unless he returns. And if he does that today, then there will not be a talk tomorrow, okay? So you'll be left in suspense. <laughs> so if we love something and we say we love God, then we really love God little and the thing too much, even though the thing is as far from the reality of God as can be. Nothing is greater or equal to God. We must renounce all things and restrict our appetites. Desire to possess nothing in order to arrive at being everything. That's, that's just a great quote from, from Friar John. So virtue does not mean that appetites are eliminated, but perfect virtue, perfect virtue is keeping the soul empty, naked, and purified. So to reach the summit of the mount, we must cast out strange gods, all alien affections and attachments, purify ourselves of the residue of these appetites and be clothed with God. Old ideas, images are cast aside once faculties are attired to a new supernatural ability. We become an altar. That is the soul in which God alone dwells to be adored and praised. And there are two ways that these appetites cause harm in the soul. The privative, that is, they, they deprive us of God's spirit or the positive, not in a good sense. When he says positive, he means actually kind of negative. Weary, torment, darken, defile, weaken the soul. So one must have freedom from all appetites to attain the divine union. So, and, and that's, that's both sensory and spiritual appetites. And so, you know, all appetites are not equally detrimental uh, and they're, they're voluntary or they're natural. You know, natural appetite is like we're hungry and we have to eat. Okay, voluntary, uh, that is something that we choose. Uh, and so that can be like that, that desire to have those consolations with prayer. Um, so natural appetites, when they receive one's consent, move beyond, become voluntary in the sensitive, but not in the rational. Okay. So when they receive one's con consent and then they move beyond, so they, they go to the voluntary. So a natural appetite. So I'm hungry. Okay. So what I need to do is I need to eat something nutritious. Okay. But instead I'm thinking of that chocolate cake that's sitting in the fridge and that chocolate cake is calling my name. That chocolate cake in fact is all I can think of. And now I'm thinking of it even more. In fact, I'm thinking of it so much that guess what I'm doing? I'm not thinking of God. I am thinking of that chocolate cake. You see how that works? You see how St. John Cross says, we become so fixated on something that we now made a, a, a voluntary appetite that, that we moved it from the natural to a voluntary where we're 
and where it's getting in the way of our relationship with God because we're thinking more of that chocolate cake than we are of God. How much in the last two hours have we thought of God? Let's see, maybe a minute. How much have I thought of that chocolate cake? Uh, let's see. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, 119 minutes. <laughs> and then we go down to that fridge and we finally do what we've been thinking of and we scarf that chocolate cake down. And it's so good, isn't it? It's that triple chocolate that you can get. Oh, it's so good. And, uh, and then our natural and voluntary appetites are satisfied for a little bit. And then, and then we start all over on something else. So night is the mortification of the appetites. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't have the brownies that were put out earlier before. Okay. Now, because I can see everybody going, is Father saying we can't have those chocolate brownies now for the rest of the retreat? And then the people in the kitchen are going to be like, don't you like our brownies? You know, nobody's eating the brownies. Well, Father Carl said, we'll go to hell if we eat them. Uh, <laughs> so what, what John the Cross is saying is he's not saying you can never have any pleasure in life. You can never enjoy good food. Da -da. It's the desire for these things. See, that chocolate cake, I'm desiring it. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I'm thinking about it all the time. See, that's that desire that gets unnatural. Whereas if I just recognize like, yeah, um, you know, Sundays, Sundays, I always have something extra. Sundays, I always celebrate because it's the feast day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a feast day. It's a solemnity in the church. Every Sunday is a solemnity. We should be feasting. We should be celebrating. Okay. Fridays, I fast. Wednesdays, I do meatless. I do meatless on Fridays. I, you know, those days are distinct. Sundays, I'll have the chocolate cake and I don't feel guilty about doing it. But see, if I'm desiring that chocolate cake on Friday and I'm thinking about it all day Friday and I'm thinking, oh, you can bend the rules. You made the rules. You can break them. <laughs> you see, I get so focused on that that I don't, I don't get past it. And that's what he's saying. He's saying this desire, we, we've got to let go of those desires that are getting in the way. And so he says, you know, basically the appetites uh, from mortal sin can cause total blindness, torment, weakness, deprive the soul of grace. Smaller appetites cause the loss of some grace, fatigue, weariness, weakness, blindness, torment. And so he basically says, you know, it's through the practice of, of like one virtue that all virtues can grow. It's through the practice of one vice that all vices and their effects can grow. So the evils that we experience, the appetites uh, being satisfied are not seen at the time. The pleasure blinds us to the evil, but eventually the effects will become apparent, such as like alcohol. You know, we, we consume too much of it or adultery, or gluttony, or gossiping, all these things we see. At the time, we might be experiencing pleasure from them, but then we see later the, the consequences, the evil that actually comes from that. Okay, so one enters the night in two ways, active and passive. Active is what we can do, uh, and passive is what God does. That's when we let go and then he works. He does the work in us. Active, we're participating with God's grace. We're doing different things. Passive, God is basically doing everything at that point. And we'll have, we'll talk more about both of those in a little bit. So basically, um, just to look at the maxims real quick that he talks about. And I think I printed these up on your sheets. So not to the easiest, but to the most difficult, not to the most delightful, but to the harshest, not to the most gratifying, but to the less pleasant, not to what mean rest for you, but, hard, but to hard work, not to the consoling, but to the unconsoling, not to the most, but to the least, not to the highest and most precious, but to the lowest and most despised, not to wanting something, but wanting nothing. Do not go about looking for the best of temporal things, but for the worst 
and desire to enter for Christ into complete nudity, emptiness, and poverty, and everything in the world. Embrace these maxims and overcome the repugnance of your will towards them. And so just to take those and maybe reflect on those throughout this retreat, um, how, how do you feel as you read each one of those and, and where are you exactly at in, in being able to embrace what, what St. John the Cross is asking for in each one of those maxims? And so the soul uh, remains subject to the sensory appetites. If it does that, then it cannot overcome the yoke of nature. It can't enter the dark night of sense and it can't have the courage to live in the darkness of all things. So we need to be able to surrender ourselves and to embrace that dark night. And so at this point, we're going to then stop and we will then be entering into the next uh, section of this where he will be talking about how we truly surrender and allow the dark night of sense to happen in our life. And, the, and then he'll go into the second part, which is the dark sense of the spiritual. So we're going to look at the senses first a little bit more. But one of the things to understand is when God acts in that way on us, in us passively, the best way to understand that, I shared this with someone before, is like a satellite, you know, a satellite that's going around the earth. Okay, it's being powered. It's kind of being powered, you know, on its own. And that's us active, okay? So that's us being active. And then let's say that that satellite, at some point it loses power. And what's going to happen to it now? It's going to begin falling to the earth. Why? Because of gravity. Gravity is pulling that satellite down. It no longer has its own power. So us entering the passive state where God now is the one who is drawing us toward him. So in the active state, we're working to draw ourselves to God. In a passive state, God is now drawing us to him. We have to do the active state first before God will be able to work the second one with us, the passive. So we have to do our part with his grace and then he'll do that second part. And then we will be to where the dark night of the senses and the spirit have both been achieved. <laughs>